Well, good morning, church. So great to see you today. Let me invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 6. Well, we're continuing this morning in our series that we've entitled, A People Empowered. And we're in the book of Acts, and this is under the umbrella uh, of our broader, too strong emphasis, where for two years we are exploring what it looks like to grow strong as a church and then to go strong to our community. And at this point in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6, God has already been working in some pretty spectacular ways. Literally every day, there were reports of new people coming to faith in Christ. But uh, as we've seen here in these recent weeks, that didn't happen without some bumps along the way. Already we've seen that the church has faced persecution, and then there was uh, the sin of hypocrisy that we saw with Ananias and Sapphira. But despite both of those issues, the church just kept on growing. And then we get to our text today, and there's an altogether different issue. And so let's read uh, together about it, Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. The Word of God says, in those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the Word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And this proposal pleased the whole company, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. So this morning, there are three observations that I want us to make from this passage, and then I want to save some time at the end for us to draw some important uh, application, if you will, for us as a church today, all right? So let's jump right in. The first thing that we see is that as the church was growing, uh, the mission of gospel advancement was threatened. The mission was threatened. Now, this wasn't the first threat that they faced. We've, we've already established that, and it certainly wouldn't be their last, but an issue had definitely risen to the surface. And the challenge that the church faced was that ministry was being overlooked. Ministry was overlooked. Luke says there in verse 1, he says, in those days... And when he says in those days, he's connecting back to chapter 5, those days when they were preaching the gospel, even in the midst of persecution. 
So he says, in those days, as the disciples were increasing in number. And so the church was growing. The church was expanding. And the reality is, growing churches are going to face problems. Uh, Ones that aren't growing are going to face problems too. It's just a different kind of problem. But really, if you think about it, most anything that grows is going to experience challenges on some level. You have growing cities, you have growing businesses, you have growing families, you have growing kids, and you have growing churches, all with increased demands placed on them as they grow. It it kind of goes with the territory. But what we see in the rest of verse 1 is that this growth led to what some might consider a ministry miss uh, for the apostles, specifically as it pertained to administering what was known as the common fund uh, for the widows and for the poor. And as a result, the Hellenist widows, as the passage describes them, were being overlooked. They were being neglected if you will, in the the daily distribution. They weren't receiving the same kind of attention that the Hebrew widows were. And in pretty short order, uh, someone had called the church office to file a complaint, right? But the interesting thing about this issue is that it arose because something good was going on. You think about it. In chapter 4, people were being generous with their resources. They were selling off land in order to help meet needs in the church, and that's why they had provisions to give out in the first place. But the program for getting these resources handed out wasn't operating to everybody's satisfaction. Now, we're helped here if we understand uh, some of the cultural tensions that were likely wrapped up in this oversight. Because there were two types of Jews that we read about here in Acts chapter 6. You had the the native-born Palestinian Jews, the Hebrews, uh, who spoke Aramaic. And then you had the Grecian Jews, the Hellenists, and they spoke Greek. And because they spoke two different languages, they likely gravitated uh, toward those who spoke the the language that they did so that they could communicate, so that they could relate to each other. It makes sense. But you add to that fact the reality that native Jews were known to kind of look down on uh, the Greek-speaking Jews in a superior sort of way. They felt like they had somehow been tainted by uh, an outside culture, and they didn't really think of them as true Jews. And at the end of the day, it was the Hellenists who felt like they were coming out on the short end of the stick. Now, it's worth noting here that care for widows was a big, big part of Jewish culture. And Ministry to widows is addressed by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 5 as a uh, a significant responsibility of the church. So it is a responsibility to be taken seriously both then and now. But these widows should have been getting what the Lord had designed for the church to provide, but they weren't. 
And that's when the, the murmuring began. And sooner or later, word made its way to the apostles. Now, I imagine that a parishioner must have emailed the executive pastor uh, to suggest that it might be a good idea if the apostles could give a little bit more time and attention to the widows. Uh, It might have read something like this, Dear Dennis, or whoever, right? Uh, A group of us have met, which is never how you want to see an email begin. A group of us have met, and we think it would be best if the apostles could give more attention to the distribution for our Hellenist widows. We think it would send a powerful message to the congregation, it would bring the two groups together, and would surely show that they really do care. That sounds good on the surface, right? After all, what could be better than for the apostles to lead by example in ministering to these widows? But that actually leads to part two of the problem. Part two of the problem is that in addition to ministry being overlooked, the leaders were overloaded. The leaders were overloaded. Verse 2 says, the 12 summoned the whole company of disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the Word of God to wait on tables. Now, conservative estimates would tell us that the church had grown to some 20,000 people or so by now. And the apostles are saying, we hear you. But there aren't enough hours in the day to attend to all of the details of ministry. Uh, This thing has gotten too big. And if we're now supposed to handle all of the widow ministry, then something's going to have to give. And what's going to suffer is the preaching. And God's not called us to give that up. You see, the apostles knew what their calling was. Their calling was to the Word. Their calling was specifically to the preaching of the Word, and they didn't want to abandon that in order to give themselves to the the time-consuming work, albeit important work, time-consuming work of the daily distribution. They said it would not be right for us to stop preaching in order to serve tables. And therein lies the problem. The leaders of the church were faced with the prospect of giving up that which was primary and making it secondary, taking that which was central to their calling and, and setting it aside. I am, I am so, so thankful to be part of a church that prioritizes the preaching of the Word and values a pastor. We we don't have apostles, all right? Today's church has pastors, elders. Values a pastor having sufficient time in a week to pray and to prepare to preach. But let's not automatically assume that it just stays that way or that we're not somehow vulnerable ourselves to this same kind of threat in our church. I mean, think about it. What happens when pastors begin bearing the ministry load that can and ought to be shouldered by members of the body? Well, 
if their priorities are not protected, they find themselves pulled toward ministry that they're really not intended to carry out, but members of the body are. I think one of the the potential pitfalls for churches today, particularly in the U.S., is this mindset that says, we'll just hire staff to do the ministry. Don't misunderstand. There, There is a legitimate place for people who serve the church vocationally. And I'm so thankful for the men and women who do. I'm thankful that it's what I get to do. But we have to be very careful not to unintentionally sideline members of the body by professionalizing every aspect of ministry. But that gate swings both ways. Because often churches find themselves having to hire staff because church members don't step up. Let's notice what happens next. Once the mission was threatened, the church leaders made adjustments. They made adjustments. Let's think first for a moment about what the apostles didn't do, okay? They didn't shut the program down. We're not doing this anymore. They didn't do that. They didn't just ask the church to be praying about a solution and and kick the can down the road. They didn't get someone else to preach for them, and they didn't tell the widows that they were just going to need to be patient. They didn't do any of those things. Instead, we see that they came up with a plan. They came up with a plan, and the plan was pretty straightforward. First of all, it says there in verse 3, select from among you seven men. Find seven men from among you. And this phrase, from among you, is not insignificant because it tells us that they didn't outsource the work. Uh, Instead, they looked within the membership of the church. In other words, it was intuitive for them to assume that whoever was needed uh, for this task was in the crowd that day. There was no announcement run in the worship guide for three weeks. There was no recruitment campaign with QR codes on the screen and lobby displays. No, you know what they did? They called names and they tapped shoulders. And they said, we need you. And we need you, and we need you, and we need you. You know, often when I talk about church membership, I I talk about what it means to be part of a a family. That's really what membership means. We're part of a family. And I don't know what it was like in your family growing up or or what it's like in your family now, but, but for me, if you lived under that roof then guess what? You shared in the responsibilities of the home. And now the the chores were age appropriate. They were matched with the the family member's ability, but everybody did something. You might take out the trash. You might set the table. You might load the dishwasher. Somebody else might pay the bills or mow the yard or cook 
the meals. You know, I can remember, I can remember grilling burgers for dinner at about nine years old. And 44 years later, I'm still grilling burgers for dinner, right? But he shares in the work of the home. If you have a guest in your home, they're not expected to do those things. Members of the family are. That's, that's how a home functions. I think far too many church members today relate to the church as consumer. What, what services or ministries does the church provide for me and my family? Do we like what they have to offer over there? And far too few are asking the question, how can I serve? Where, where might God want to use me? And in what ways could I make a, a meaningful contribution to this body? Friends, church is not a spectator sport. It's designed for active participation and engagement. And on that day, the apostle said, y'all look around because everyone we need for this is right here. Next, they said, uh, ensure that they're qualified. So find seven of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom. So what that means is the candidates needed to be both spiritual and sensible. Uh, this was going to be a vital combination for the work that they would be doing. They were going to be handling resources and, and distributing resources. So they, they needed to be trustworthy, but they also needed to be mature in their faith. And so the apostles said, as you choose, let's be sure that they are ready for the task. And then give away the ministry, whom we can appoint to this duty. They said to the church that day, you go enlist them, and then we'll empower them to get busy with the work of ministry. It was pastor and evangelist D.L. Moody years ago that said, it is better to put 10 men to work than to do the work of 10 men. And that's what was happening here. But I want you to notice something, and guys like me who are kind of administratively wired and oriented uh, are really encouraged by this, but notice that the threat is not resolved with divine intervention. So God didn't just drop a solution down from heaven and presto, the widows are served. No, the way that the threat was resolved was with structural and organizational adjustments right? Well, after they came up with a plan, they clarified their priorities. Verse 4, they said, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word, prayer and preaching. And they reiterated that it wouldn't be right to set aside prayer and the proclamation of the gospel in order to pursue something else. And, don't miss this, they recognized the relationship between those two things, prayer and preaching. And they said, you, you serve the tables and we will serve the Word. In Ephesians chapter 4, uh, the apostle Paul says that the Lord has given to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Paul was saying, here's how the church works. Pastors help bring members to maturity. Members help carry out the ministry. 
And so they came up with a plan. They confirmed, clarified their priorities. And then third, they called out the people. Again, they started tapping shoulders and and naming names. Verse 5 says, this proposal, meaning the plan and the priorities we just looked at, pleased the whole company. And so the church said, we like that. Let's go with that. The Bible says, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip. We'll learn more about both of those men in the coming chapters. And then five guys that we never hear from again. Five guys who probably never made it onto the stage, never taught a large class or chaired a committee or sang a solo but five guys who stepped up to the plate when called upon to serve the body. And there really is something kind of interesting and and wonderful about this particular roster of servants. And it's not apparent just at first glance, but these are all Greek names. And, And so, Are you connecting the dots there? What the church said is if the Greek-speaking Jews are the ones that are being neglected, then what better way to serve them to choose seven people who can make sure that they are going to be served well? Just an, an amazing expression of unity and trust in the church. And so what happens? What happens when... The church gets organized well for ministry, and they maintain a priority on the preaching of the Word in prayer. You know what happens? They grow strong. That's what happens. They grow stronger. We see it there in verse 7. First of all, it says, the Word was spread. The Word of God spread. Why? Because the apostles now had the time to give themselves to this important task of the ministry of the Word. And don't miss this. God is honored by, and He uses the faithful and consistent proclamation of the gospel. But it also spread because the church was together again. They were rowing in the same direction. And listen, there is nothing quite like the local church when it's working right. And the word was spread, and it says the lost were saved. The text says the number of disciples increased greatly. So they're not growing by addition anymore. They're growing exponentially. But watch this. Don't miss the fact that meeting the needs of widows was connected to thousands of people being saved. How does that even happen? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't really make sense that the dots would connect like that, but they do. Watch this. Uh, a need arises, and people step up, and the need is met, and unity is restored, and the Word is preached, and people are saved. That's how the dots connect. And I do believe, church, I do believe that one key implication from this passage is that ministry to those who are marginalized results in God's blessing. 
Let me say that again. Ministry to those who are marginalized results in God's blessing. Let's not miss that. It was Jesus who said, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. I've got to believe that God smiles when churches take that kind of ministry seriously. Do you ever wonder... Do you ever wonder if your small area of ministry or act of service makes a difference? I think a lot of people probably think that from time to time. Give you something to think about. I love it when, when winning teams value every person in the organization. So, for instance, when, it, when a football team wins the championship... The kudos don't just go to the the head coach or a few great players, but there's the realization that there were a whole lot of people that helped make that season possible. And yes, you have the linemen that did all the work in the trenches, right? And you have the special teams that made some key plays along the way. But you know what? You also have the practice squad. And you have the position coaches, and you have the strength and conditioning department, and you have a video staff, and you have team doctors and trainers, and you have an equipment manager, and you have a communications team, and every one of those folks shares in the win. Why? Because each one played a valuable part. It's kind of like the church. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul reminds us that every part of the body has significance. And he tells us that it's often those who serve in ways that seem small or in ways that often go unnoticed that really are quite valuable. And so can, can rocking a baby in the preschool hall really make that big of a difference? Can operating one of these video cameras or providing food for someone in need or doing home repairs for a widow, can those things really bring glory to God and serve to advance the gospel? Absolutely. Every part of the body is valuable. And then verse 7 says, a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. What is that all about? Well, these aren't the chief priests. These are the ordinary priests who represented the core of the church's opposition. And so, humanly speaking, these guys would have been among the most difficult to reach. Uh, They would have been the ones that were entrenched in Jewish ceremony and tradition and probably would have been prone to think that salvation came by works or because of their Jewish birth. These guys would not have seen themselves as sinners in need of a Savior, yet God worked through the faithful proclamation of the gospel to bring them to salvation. You know, maybe, maybe you're here today. Maybe there's someone here today or watching even by live stream. There's part of that that you can identify with. Maybe you would consider yourself difficult to reach. 
or you're banking on salvation coming to you because of your good works or because you were born to Christian parents. Listen, the same gospel that was preached 2,000 years ago when the priests became obedient to the faith is the same gospel that we preach today. And it's this, that our sin separates us from a holy and perfect God. But God sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect, sinless life. To die on a cross and to pay the penalty for my sin and for your sin. And He rose from the dead to demonstrate His power over sin and death. And He lives in heaven today. That's the good news. And if you've never believed this good news, oh, like the priest of Acts 6, I would urge you to do so today. Turn from your sin and put your trust in Christ alone for your salvation and follow Him from this day forward for the rest of your life. That was their day of salvation. Today could be your day of salvation. And so the word was spread, the lost were saved, and the people were served. The people were served. A threat in the church that at a minimum, at a minimum could have caused the apostles to get their eye off the ball. Or if not addressed, could have affected the, the expansion of the church. Instead, became a catalyst for growth, a, a spark for unity and ministry in the body of Christ. And we don't have the details on what happened once the plan was set in motion, but we are left to conclude that the threat was mitigated and the widows were served and the church was once again off and running. And so what are implications of a message like this for us? Five things as we wrap up this morning. First of all, Brook Hills. Let's continue to prioritize the word and prayer. If we want to see the gospel advanced, we want to see the lost saved, and we want to see the church served well, let's not lose sight of the fact that the health and strength of our body has a direct relationship to the preaching and teaching ministry of our church. It's not the only thing that is needed for Brook Hills to be strong, but it has to be on the list of non-negotiables, right? Number two, let's get organized for effective ministry. That's what they did in Acts 6. They got organized. And what we see in Acts 6 is not unlike what we see in Exodus 18, where Jethro said to Moses, you're trying to carry out, carry out all this judicial work by yourself. And it's not good for you. It's not good for the people. You need to get this thing organized and begin to delegate. And he did. And here's the reality. If the ministry needs of this body are going to be met, it won't happen because a few hired guns work really hard. No, collectively, we have to be willing to make it happen. You say, Dennis, isn't that what we have guys like you for, to, to get us all organized for this? You know, organizing a, a pie fellowship is, is one thing. 
organizing a few thousand people to minister to one another is quite another. And so let me make this even more practical. If you're a member of Brook Hills and you're willing to help us get organized for ministry, step one is this, get in a small group. Because one of our objectives in this first year of our Too Strong Emphasis is to see every member connected to a small group. And one of the reasons why is because in a larger church, that's where day-to-day, life-on-life ministry is going to happen. Next, let's use our time and gifts to serve and strengthen the local church. One of our eight pursuits as a church is we pursue ministry so we invest sacrificially. And wrapped up in this is a giving component and also a serving component. And if we're not careful, we can tend to think of it as an either-or. We can think, you know, if I serve, then maybe I get a little bit of a pass on, on giving. Or if I give, then I can get a little bit of a pass on serving. But for the healthy church member and for the church that is growing strong, it's a both and. Investing sacrificially, pursuing ministry is giving and serving. Sometimes I think we we rationalize or, or spiritualize our way out of serving. We can say, I just don't think I have the gift of fill in the blank, right? Or, you know, I've, I've prayed about it. I'm just not getting a yes from the Lord. I'm not even sure what that means fully, but, uh, but I've heard it a few times. I think I know what it means. But sometimes, folks, when there is a practical need in the church and you're asked to help meet it, the best response might just be, what time do I need to be there? Others might say, Dennis, I'm not even sure I have a spiritual gift. Listen, every person listening to this, if you're a Christian, don't miss this. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you can take this to the bank. You have been entrusted with a God-given endowment called a spiritual gift that He intends for you to invest into the body of Christ for the purpose of building up the church. Spiritual gifts are given to the body, every member of the body, for the body. And so getting real practical, Dennis, how, how how do I even begin to understand what that might be. A few things. Pray and ask the Spirit of God to show you how He has gifted you. And don't just pray once. Pray for several days or a few weeks or even longer than that and ask God to show you. And as you do, begin to write down on a sheet of paper what some of your ministry passions are. What are some experiences you've had that you can bring to the table in the local church? What are interests that you have, things you'd like to do? 
What are areas of fruitfulness where you feel like you've been effective over the years? And begin to write some of these things down as you're praying. And then you can take that and you can ask some trusted believers who know you well to tell you what they see in you. You might say to your friend, hey, I've been praying about this, asking God to show me kind of how he's wired me, how he wants me to, to plug into the church, and so could I, could I test this out on you? I wrote some things down and wanted to see what you thought. And Maybe you mentioned that first one, and the person looks at you and says, do you have anything else on the list, right? But that's okay, because that's part of the process of kind of working that out. They may say, hey, I think you're right on target. Man, pursue that. And then proactively experiment with some different places of service in the body of Christ. Try something. I think sometimes we're afraid to, to try something. And you say, where would I even get started with that at a, at a church like Brook Hills? Big church, lots of things. I don't even know how to do that. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Because we have just, this week, updated our serving opportunities page on our website. It's brookhills.org serve. You can write that down. And here's the deal. If you are not currently serving or if you're a member and you're wanting to explore something new or something more, go to this page sometime in the next week or so and spend some time on it. Find one or two areas of service that you might be interested in knowing more about. And then take a step, lean in, contact that ministry leader and say, hey, uh, no, no strings attached, I just want to know more. Help me know how I might fit into this picture. I think what I'm saying is just don't be guilty of the paralysis of analysis. We have, we have some who have been praying about where you need to serve for far, far too long. It's time to get in the game, right? Next, let's always be spiritually ready to serve. My guess is if you looked over the role of the church on that day in Acts 6, there were probably some who met the qualifications and probably several who didn't. But the seven who were chosen were spiritually ready when their number was called. For some of you, your, your number's not been called, your shoulder's not been tapped because you're not ready. And so could, could that be said of you? What would it look like for that to be said of you? Are you walking with Christ daily, faithfully? Are you growing in godliness? Are you demonstrating spiritual maturity in the body of Christ? Do, do you faithfully attend? That's a starting point. Are you getting to know and, and making yourself available to leaders in the church? Let me ask it this way. Does your spiritual life give evidence that you are ready, eager, and qualified to serve? And if not, what's keeping you from getting yourself ready for service. And then last, let's trust God. Let's trust God to use our service for His glory and the advancement of the gospel. You know, in Acts 6, what we see is we see service bringing strength to the church. 
And it happened then and there. By the grace of God, may it happen here and now.